You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 117. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the latest Local Maximum. We have a great discussion coming up today. We're going to get into a couple things. One is... One is all these ridiculous, hyped-up AI articles that are coming out, because watch out, all the internet folks are trying to cash in these days on the the latest crisis, Um, and, you know, AI sounds very scary to people, and it's always always interesting to, to dive into those articles and say, hey... Wait a minute with with all these uh, news updates on AI. We're not, you know, we're not in, into Terminator land yet. Uh, and the other topic uh, uh, today is the problem, uh, the the difficult problem of deferring to experts. This is particularly important in a time of crisis such as we are in. And it seems like every day we're told something like, "Well, you have to listen to this authority," and. Uh, you know, they are designated as the expert. And, and this opinion over here, uh, well, this person doesn't have the PhD in the right kind of field, and therefore you should discount their view and don't even try to evaluate their claims yourself. It's, it's not worth your time. Well, I think that we need to be a little more discerning than that. Wouldn't you agree? So, you know, think about what happens when we try to solve problems, for example, in the software world. We like to bring together teams, maybe small teams that, so that we can communicate with each other easily. But we want to have a wide diversity of backgrounds and opinions in order to effectively solve the problem. You might have a resident expert in machine learning, one in design, one in, in product, one in you know, pro- project management. But they can get questions uh, by people with different viewpoints on what they're doing. And ultimately, uh, everyone comes out with a good solution in the end if you have a good team. So, but, and, and that's when it works out well. And I've seen it work out well, but it seems like all the talk of diversity of opinion is getting thrown out the window right when we need it most. Uh, so um, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. All right, so my next guest is a machine learning expert in his own right and is the host of the Artificially Intelligent Podcast. Christian Hubs, you've reached another local maximum. Welcome to the show. Yes, my second. <laughs> it's the second more uh, uh, more optimal local maximum this time than the last time, I, uh, I yeah. presume. That's the point. Um, I so, can see the first one down below. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. It's been a long, what, uh, two years since you've been on the show? Yeah, it's been a little while, but it's, it's good to be It doesn't back. feel like that long. I don't know. I've been doing this show for two years, and I'm starting to, um, like, there not most guests, but a few guests have come around the second time and it almost feels like, Oh, I just had you on recently. And then I found out it's two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I know the feeling. Cause I mean, you were on my show recently and I had a few other people who were, um, you know, kind of repeat guests and it's kind of funny. You go in these cycles a little bit like, Oh yeah, let me check it back in with that guy. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's as long ago as it, as it actually has been, but right. it's changed. Yeah. If, if it were, if, if I had a daily show, maybe I would, uh, have people on more often, but, uh, it, yeah. it, it seems like maybe, you know, cause it's only like what 50, hundred episodes. I don't know. How long have you been doing artificially intelligent? I started that. I think I kicked it off in March, 2017. Okay. We started. So we've been doing okay. it for a little while. Good time to start a podcast. What made you start that, by the way? I know this is not in our notes, but uh, no, I'm just curious because I've been going on a bunch of shows recently and I had a lot of reasons why I started this podcast. So um, uh, why did you start Artificially Intelligent to begin with? So um, this was kind of, I had 
been working in the machine learning data science world for a little while, for a couple of years at that point. And I was getting into podcasts. I think I didn't really discover them or get into them until like 2016 when I started listening all the time. And um, I was listening to a bunch of data science and AI podcasts. Actually, I shouldn't say a bunch. There were only a handful at that time. It right. really blew up in There's still kind of only a handful. I mean, we could. I could probably do some research. I don't know how many we'd find, but I... I can't imagine you'd find more than like a hundred or so, you know, like it's not like there are thousands out there. Right. Right. It's not like true crime or some of those other genres or politics yeah. or whatever, where there's a ton of stuff. I, I think you'd probably find two to three dozen. Um, yeah. Yeah. Still kind of in our niche that we're, that we podcast in and discuss. Especially if it's like, you know, are, are they active? Right. Right. Yeah. That's the thing. But, but one of the things that I found at least at the time was that every all of the podcasts were really focused on more of the technical stuff. Um, so you had uh, some that were like uh, like linear digressions or um, this week in machine learning AI uh, was new at that time. <clears throat> Excuse me. A bunch of those that were out there, they were all kind of focused on talking with researchers and other things like that. And there wasn't a whole lot that was kind of targeted more for the lay audience or people who were a bit more interested in it and didn't want to get into down into the weeds, but could take maybe a higher, um, a, a broader view, a higher level view at, at the technology. And plus with all the hype and everything that was kicking off, I thought it would be a good chance to, to get in there and, and talk about this stuff. And I also did it for career purposes too, because like, Hey, I've been working on this and I wanted to really sort of establish myself um, by putting something out there um, for people in my company and elsewhere to be able to see and, and to look at. And I think it's been successful in that regard as well. Very cool. So yeah, before we get into today's topics, like what have you been working on uh, recently in terms of like your research or professionally or that sort of thing? Yeah, so um, I'm focused on trying to develop uh, deep reinforcement learning systems to help make complex decisions for chemical production processes. So that's really where my research is focused. And um, yeah, we've been trying to get this uh, project off the ground and into production for quite some time. Uh, we kept on getting delayed <laughs> for a number of reasons. Yeah. And uh, every time it seems oh, like- Tell ready. me about it. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> the last couple months. Uh, well, I don't know if, if, if that would delay your research, but- yeah, it hasn't helped, you know, with the whole COVID stuff. I mean, yeah. obviously, it's 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 not uh, not friendly. Um, no tailwinds there. <laughs> it's uh, um, kind of it hasn't been a direct uh, delay, but you know, stuff with just data security issues, other things that always keep on popping up. You know, last minute we think that we solve it, and then something new new keeps on coming up. Or or you know, we had a had a problem last year because we thought we were going to launch in September of last year with this. Um, and there was actually a, uh, an explosion at one of the upstream suppliers. And so the system that we were going to automate was shut down for about four months. So nothing we could do about that, but that, that happened. And then our data layer changed and a bunch of other stuff in between. And so it's just always been retooling and finally ready to get it out there. So, yeah, no, good luck. Let me know when you do. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the AI hype, um, which is, um, I feel like AI hype is a gift that keeps on giving for those of us who want to 
find content for our podcasts, right? <laughs> podcast. Yeah. No, because a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about AI, machine learning, where is it all going? And even as, even as someone who implements machine learning algorithms and kind of understands them, it's still, you still need to sort of think about it to try to get, you know, the bigger picture of where this is all going. So, um, and, and to try to understand, to try to like, you know, read behind the headlines here. Um, so the, the first one that we have here is from sciencemag.org and their headline is AI evolving all by itself. Now before, I'm going to keep my mouth shut on my initial uh, thoughts on this headline, but why don't you give yours? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, whenever you see stuff like this, I, I, I think that there's something in the culture, the human psyche, or what have you, when you combine artificial intelligence and evolution together, people just freak out. You know, whatever it is, they think Skynet, they think that the world's going to end. And that's been a ton of the responses I've seen to this article. That's, that's yeah. Come out. Well, it's, ex it's, it's extremely compelling for some reason. I'm not exactly sure uh, why it is, but it always... Yeah, when I think of like algorithms, when I think of like, when I, if I rate them in terms of what's the most interesting, genetic algorithm rates very high on interestingness, very low uh, in terms of practical application, yeah. uh, at least for now, I, that could change one day. But, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, it, it does. Sound, it's almost like, it's almost like a sci-fi horror genre. Right, right. Because I think it, it kind of combines that, uh, that, at least evokes those images of the machine and the biological sort of coming together in a way that we can't necessarily control or something like that. But like you said, uh, you know, this is this, this article here is based on a research paper that recently came out of Google, uh, I think Google Brain, and they have put together this genetic algorithm using AutoML, um, or when you read the paper, it's genetic-like. Uh, that takes some basic operators from your Python NumPy package, which is really a basic scientific computing package that everybody uses that contains you know, dot products and multiplication addition, all this other stuff, and is really nice and convenient for yep. some scientific computing. They take 65, I think, operations, and they wind up combining this into this genetic algorithm so that it's able to learn... Um, on this image recognition uh, data set, CIFAR-10, and it figures out how to make a neural network and how to combine these operations to do some uh, rudimentary backpropagation and some other things that people have already discovered, uh, but it sort of learns it on its own through this uh, recombination of this genetic algorithm. And really, a genetic algorithm is just taking some of these pieces and doing this sort of population-based search where you have a bunch of different pieces that maybe one over here does addition and then multiplication, this one over here does some division and then subtraction, I don't know, whatever. And they will try to fit to this uh, optimization function that they're trying to do where they're trying to learn this value. And then the most successful ones get recombined in the next uh, population. And so, and they usually randomize it again um, to increase the population, keep your top five, 10%, something like that, and then move forward until it winds up converging or, or getting su sufficient values that, that, that look pretty good. And so that's basically what's going on here. It's interesting because it found some of these uh, techniques and tools that people have already been, have been using for quite some time. It found it on its own, um, but it doesn't seem to me to be this groundbreaking thing. And it's certainly not this... AI is going to take over the world <laughs> type of thing that everybody's uh, talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, 
I, I see nothing wrong with their overall approach. Like, you know, searching a space of solutions is just a very common problem in machine learning and AI in general. Um, but it also sounds to me like they're describing genetic algorithms, which is something a, I, I learned as an undergrad, but even when I learned it, it was like really old. It was, uh, you know, what it's probably, you know, it, it's at least a 50 year old idea, if not more. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's not it's not groundbreaking in in the sense of applying genetic algorithms to neural networks. Um, so that's one of the things that they talk about in the paper is that there is this uh, area of neuroevolution that's out there where you do it with architecture search. And so you have a neural network that might have 10 layers, another one that might have five, have different activation functions. Drop yeah, they like change things things. around a little bit to see if you can get better results. Right. And so you can evolve that by doing this sort of genetic algorithm approach. And that's something that's there. Um, and they even talk about how there was a uh, paper, and I'm not exactly sure about the specific differences, but uh, from Yashio Bengio, um, from a while ago who did something very similar and what they say is different from what they do here is that they don't use um, a tree based structure for their genetic algorithm for their genetic programming but they use a uh, sequence of instructions now exactly what the difference between those i'm not i'm not entirely sure but yeah overall it doesn't seem like something that's totally groundbreaking and revolutionary so, I mean, do you, th well, okay, one, before, I, I, I want to ask this question first, like the article itself was very light in terms of applications. It was just like, it's this thing that's going to learn by itself, and then it's going to get smarter and smarter, but it didn't really say a whole lot about what it actually does. So you said it's used on image recognition. Are they trying to classify images or learn about images? What are they, do you know what they're trying to do there? Yeah, so they, they did it for the uh, CIFAR-10, which is this kind of standard, image classification um, data set that is used for benchmarking a lot of uh, you know, deep neural network or deep neural network uh, tasks. And so it, it, it performed fairly well and it found all, it found all this stuff. I mean, this is something that's been solved basically uh, over the past five years. It's, it's used time and time again. So it's really nothing new on that. And so that's where I, you get to these like popular level articles and you're just shocked by like, how do you, how do you guys take this, take this away that this is, is there, run away? <laughs> so you're saying like they're applying it to a data set to a problem that we already have pretty good techniques for. So there's nothing like brand new that it could do that, that something else couldn't do before. Right. Right. Like the, the novelty that I took away from this is really that it's, the way that it did this combination to find these existing solutions out there. And they're hoping that they can use this to find maybe new techniques for training deep neural networks in the future. Yeah. Is there like a, a non-hyped way of, of talking about like, Hey, automating machine learning research uh, is like an interesting field. And uh, there, there is some, there are some research opportunities there or, or some potential there. Uh, do you think it would be, um, it, it would be, uh, correct to say that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Because, uh, you know, one of the things when you're dealing with these neural networks or these ML systems, as, as you well know, there are tons of hyperparameters and other things that you need to tune and to work with in order to get really good performance. So what Google has ruled out and what they use here is, uh, is auto ML. So auto automated machine learning that takes care of a lot of that stuff for you um, and tries to find a, a, a good model to fit your data. So that's really the promise of auto ML in the future. It's been one of those things that's been um, talked about for quite some time now, for a number of years. I haven't seen it wide, widely adopted, um, at least 
in industry. It's talked about a little bit more in the uh, academic world about trying to use this stuff because it's kind of this meta learning, learning um, at, at this uh, which model to use uh, for your problem and how to tune that model. So there are lots of great hyperparameter tunings as well that are out there that use Bayesian optimization and other things like that to be able to try to find it and be a little bit more intelligent as well. And I think some of that's incorporated in your general auto ML framework. Yeah, it, it makes sense to me. It makes sense like, hey, I do all this machine learning work. Uh, maybe we should try to automate it. Um, I don't know. that. that to me, that's a p very appealing. Yeah, you're, you're putting yourself out of a job, Max. <laughs> <laughs> Good, yes. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 well, I'm not even going to get into that. We've done, we've done whole, uh, whole episodes on, on that whole issue. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, it, it would be fun while it lasted. I, I could say that. Yeah. Um, yes, and then uh, and then so long as I own the uh, the the results of the or the or a piece of the company that owns the results, at least I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, so, so coming back to this this article and the reaction to it more than anything, um, one of the things I think people don't understand is that these systems, these AI systems, these machine learning systems, aren't going to just take off and teach themselves. That's not how this works. You know, you have to give them an objective. They don't just find this out in the wild, de novo, and, and are intrinsically self-motivated to go do something, you know, and it's really typically just fitting a function. You know, it might be some high dimensional space that it's trying to fit like an image to map inputs of pixels to cat. Um, but that needs to be defined. And it's pretty well constrained within that, within the rules and uh, trying to map inputs to that function. Yeah, I, I agree. There's nothing now that 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 can anywhere approach that. And but you know, it's still it's still some part of me dreams about building something that's like, hey, go solve all my problems. Oh yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> right? That'd be your dream. Like I, yeah. I have a phrase that I've, I've said around work a lot is that I'm a lazy engineer. I want to solve something once and never have to touch it again. And better yet, if I can find something that will solve all my problems, then just go, go do it. You know, I'll build that and then take the day off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they're good long-term goals, uh, but um, yes, no, nobody else is going gonna, is gonna to beat us to it anytime soon on, in, in this front. Um, respect solving our own problems. Yeah. All right. So uh, we go on to the next one. The next one is AI to diagnose COVID-19. Everybody, that's the only news topic uh, this month is COVID-19. So uh, everybody's kind of jumping on that bandwagon. Before we get into this, like, man, there's there's so many bandwagons that people are jumping on. And I'm like, one of them is the whole like, um, contact tracing app type yeah. uh, deal. And like, everybody's like, oh, we're going to build a contact tracing app. I am just like, this will never, this, this, all of these are just failed software projects waiting to happen, uh, waiting yeah, to be uh, written about in the future. Uh, wasn't that the supposedly the success story in South Korea was the, their contact tracing and they had developed oh, an app and I think Singapore as well. Is that true? Yeah, yeah I think that I, I think at least a lot of people attribute um, South Korea's response to their contact tracing. And I did see some stuff in Singapore where they had labeled um, certain houses for people who are known to be infected. Gotcha. Um, or at gotcha. least the apartment blocks and other things so that people could, you know, walk down a different street or something. Yeah. I don't know. And what I'm we're talking about is like, there, there are all these like startups out there where like, we're going to build the contact tracing app for the United States. And oh, okay. right. it's just like, oh my God, sure you are. Uh, <laughs> anyway, good. I mean, fine. Prove me wrong. What? That's how most startups are, right? Like, oh, yeah. we're going to 
facts. And then, you know, you've got a thousand out there that try to do it and one actually succeeds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in this case, that usually takes place over a period of like, you know, two to five to 10 years. Um, in this case, it's, I mean, they might miss the boat. Even right. the even the very pessimistic people who are like, we're going to be living like this for the next five years. Like that's not, uh, that's not even long, that, that's almost not, not long enough for a startup to come out of it. Uh, they'll, they'll miss the boat in five years. Um, right. Okay, so back to this article, because this is not about a contact tracing app. This is about detecting COVID-19 with 90% accuracy. Uh, beware of the AI hype. So what was this article that was flying around? This, Unlike the other article, this was just a claim that was just, the other article was more, you know, uh, uh, hype. This one maybe was just even further than that. It was just like, was it BS or, or where would you say it landed? <laughs> Um, oh yeah, definitely on the BS side. But this one got a ton, a ton of attention uh, when it came, at least in in my circle. So I saw this shared initially on LinkedIn, where um, I was scrolling through, and some people were uh, discussing this and sharing it. Um, the the claims are is that by looking at chest X rays, you can use deep learning to be able to identify whether or not somebody has been infected with COVID nineteen. So. Okay. Medical imaging has been very um, has been a great place of application for deep learning. So there was a paper a few years ago about um, finding uh, cancer and tumors uh, coming out of Google Brain, I believe. If I remember correctly, they said they were better at it than doctors. Was that true? Yeah, than radiologists. So they had a, yeah. a lower error rate and, um, and better accuracy. Uh, versus trained radiologists and looking at tumors and uh, their, their their scans. So, you know, this kind of stuff has worked in the past in the medical field. That could almost be why people were primed to believe this one. Right. Yeah. But this one was just completely, I don't know. It, so there was some, there was a PhD student in Australia who put this together. And apparently they took one of those pre-trained convolutional neural networks that has like 150 layers called ResNet and passed 50 chest x-rays through it of severe COVID infections and wound up feeding that back in using the same data set for the trust for the uh, uh, training and the test set. That's a big so, one now. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know exactly that. Uh, yeah. And it wound up getting like 97% accuracy. And then they went out and tried to raise a bunch of money, started a huge Slack channel, got like this Git repo out there. And then that's when I saw it shared on LinkedIn because that's where it went um, and it was circling quite a bit. Uh, and people were just all, all over like, oh, we can use this to, to identify COVID-19 infections. And my first instinct when I read that was like, okay, maybe I'm completely off about the virology, but the fact that you could see a viral infection through an x-ray and be able to catch that early on seems really dubious to me that that would be a, a, a valid a viral infection and cancer are very different situations right and, and detecting an infection with an x-ray so what they were able to find was people who had severe lung damage with this x-ray and that's basically all it had but then also this was circulating early march and so the other thing was how much data is actually out there on this stuff, how many people have had X-rays that you can actually get who have had COVID nineteen that, that have been properly labeled and that you could find? I mean, what, what what's the data that's going to be circulating at that time? Um, could it tell the difference? Were they even trying to tell the difference between COVID nineteen lung damage and other lung damage? No, I think it was just all COVID. Like they had fifty images that they fed through this. 
And, and were they all COVID-19 or was there actually a, did, please tell me there's a set of healthy lungs as well. I, I actually don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was all COVID-19 images, but still it was 50. And you've got this yeah. multi-million uh, parameter neural network that you're trying to fit this thing on and you, have, and you fit it with 50 images. I mean, there's just no way that that's going to come through. Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah. It, so it, 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 plus the pre-training for it was on, you know, like stop signs and cat pictures and, you know, hot dog or not hot dog or whatever else. Is. Oh yeah. We had one of those at Foursquare. <laughs> we, we built that before it was cool. At, uh, like, uh, before the, the, before it came on the Silicon Valley show, but, uh, not too helpful with hex ray, uh, uh chest x-rays. So I, they didn't raise money off this, did they? So I think it wound up getting pulled first, but there were people who were inquiring about it, so people who were looking into it. Um, they had a big Slack channel set up and a bunch of other stuff around this whole project. It wound up getting a ton of uh, traffic on GitHub. Everything's now been pulled down and uh, closed up because it came out that once people start to dig a little bit deeper, they scratch yeah. below the surface and realize, whoa, this is complete garbage. And so that eventually made its way to the surface and, and wound up shutting it down. The people who put it up, like, apologize and say, uh, you know, oh, sorry, we uh, we jumped the gun on this one, or did they just slink away? I don't know, to be honest. I yeah. haven't seen, um, like, uh, from what I can tell, the Slack channel and all the other communication is just down, deleted. So if Man. they ever... Fly-by-night operation. Culpa, yeah. I, I feel like, yeah, I mean... Uh, to data training data in the test set is like you know uh, that's like ML 101 if if you take one class of machine learning that that should be one of your takeaways like if you don't answer that question correctly on the final exam i would uh, if i were the professor in a machine learning class i would want to fail those students <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, right it's like you got everything else right but if you yeah. test if, if you test on your training data go home yeah. Now, if if there's a situation where someone reports a result and then it turns out that uh, test data or training data accidentally made it in there, uh, and then they, they they retract it, that's that's one thing. I think I could be a little more forgiving on that because they they knew they weren't supposed to do it. But software data, all these weird things happen, uh, and that's yeah. why you have to like test things over and over. But it doesn't sound like this was a case of like a, a, a whoopsie type situation. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you, you should know right away when you see something that comes out with 97% accuracy that you did mm. something wrong. Like, yeah, yeah. I had a, um, this reminds me, I, I was training a model once where it was a, uh, a, a tree-based model. It was a decision tree, um, uh, some, something like a, you know, a series of decision trees. Was it a random forest or something like that? And I, I noticed I was getting good results and something it wasn't 97%. It was, it was like detecting whether someone's going to visit a, a, a chain or not. But it was, it was pretty good. It was like, it was a little too good to be believable. And like, so we started celebrating and something was just not right, you know? And yeah. so what happened was, and, and so I increased the number of branches in the tree and then it got better. And then of course, one of the hypotheses are, oh, you have more branches, you're learning more now. That's great. You know, it's like it's learning. It's learning more about the space. Mm -hmm. I increased branches more. It got even better, and now something is like really bad because I'm like, there's no way it's this good. Yeah. It it turned out that the because we didn't write the whole algorithm. So it was like uh, coming from um, coming from uh, third party software. It turned out that 
when the tree when it got down to like a leaf in the tree and it it predicted a hundred percent in the wrong class, you know, it actually predicts a hundred percent in the wrong class. That should be minus infinity uh 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 lift or or uh, not lift loss. It should be loss, infinite yeah. loss, right? Whatever, because it predicted the entire predicted zero percent chance that the thing that actually happened. It turned out that the uh the software was changing that infinity into a into it just didn't know what to do with it. So essentially changed into a zero, it dropped it. So oh. the, the worse it got, the better it got. And it was like, but it took, it was so frustrating and it took yeah. so long and it was just like, things were looking good. And then, then they started looking a little too good. And then, you know, they too good. They're too, they're too good. And then you find the bug. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that, that's a, a, a very common thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've had issues like that before, just because I've accidentally inverted a, a like had a minus sign, dropped it somewhere, or, or, or stuff like that, where it yeah. suddenly like just throws your whole loss out, and it makes your stats look really great, and you're just like, no, this, this can't be right. But there's like yeah. a, a classic ML story. I think it, it was a Kaggle competition or something like that, um, where they were trying to do some prediction on medical data, and everything looked great, but it turned out that there was, um, there, there was leakage in the data that the algorithm was able to pick up on because one of the data features was a, uh, uh, I think it was a patient number or something like that. And okay. patient number was actually correlated with a specific hospital that people went to. And okay. severe cases wound up going to one hospital, whereas non-severe cases or, oh, wow. you know, went to a different one. And so it found that in this, you know, what to most people looked like a random six digits or something like that, of the algorithm. So some people tried to learn on the patient number. Yeah, but completely not realizing that that was the case. Right, right. They're just like, number. here's all my columns. All right, let's see. Let's throw the patient number in there and see what happens. Yeah, and then you 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 drop that feature, and then all of a sudden, you know, it, the the model falls apart, and it has a te has terrible predictive accuracy. It's just basically random. Um, but then when you throw the patient number in, you know, something that should not be correlated at least in advance, because you you don't know. In advance, it's only because after the fact, this data was collected and then used as, and then labeled and then sent back that people were able to actually make that prediction. So you got to be really careful about leakage stuff and even yeah. even things that are, are really minor, let alone you know training on your test data or uh, testing on your training data. Um, talk talk about machines data. like uh, ha going their own way and uh, having a mind to their own. And this is the kind of stuff that I'm always worried about. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like you know, just just finding you know just just finding something in the data that that that, that they're very good at finding ways of cheating. Oh you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, patient like, number. Yeah, finding those uh, those uh, reward hacks and other things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. That's something you got to worry about a lot because I do a lot of my work in reinforcement learning where the agent interacts with an environment, and you can find that they do so many weird reward hacks. Like uh, it'll. I, I was playing around with this one for this paper that I'm working on um, where we're trying to release some, some benchmark suites and tests and other things on some classical like operations research problems and other things. And I was finding that the way that the algorithm was set up, I gave it this big, large penalty, um, but it wasn't, it, it kept on finding that the, the best way to do it to, uh, uh, to perform on a task was just to kill itself right away um, because it was too hard. The task was too difficult. And so it just would try to kill itself as quickly as possible to end the task, take the big penalty, and be done. And so it would, uh, that's, it, it winds up getting stuck. And that's, you know, reward hacking. It's some sort of behavior that you don't want it to do. Um, mm. But it finds these weird ways of, of 
behaving that you don't expect and you really don't want. You don't want it blowing up your system so it can incur some big penalty because it's too difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's always, that's the trick, right? Um, trying to come up with the, uh, the, the, the scoring function could be, um, you know, could be the scoring functions are always difficult. Even, even in, in like in, in life and business, like you had on your, um, your show, you talked about return on investment to like investing in data and stuff. It's just trying to figure out how to evaluate something, even on a human level is very difficult. Uh, but yeah. also very difficult on the machine level too. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm not worried about robots taking over because, I mean, what are they going to optimize for and is that going to be properly designed so that they can um, actually figure things out? And I know most people are concerned about, you know, we don't design it properly and then, you know, you've got uh, Nick Bostrom and his paperclip factory that's going to destroy the galaxy or what have you mm. um, with a super intelligent machine that's basically told to make as many paperclips as fast as possible. And so it uh, takes over and it figures out that the best way to do it is to you know, uh, do all this crazy stuff that winds up destroying the world. Yeah, it makes no sense that it would run out of money. I mean, <laughs> unless unless you're arguing that the machine could overpower every other machine and army in the world. It, which, it has no constraints on resources. Yeah. It never makes a mistake along the way. But and, how? why would one machine be that more, a paperclip machine, no less, be that more advanced than all the other machines doing all the other automated processes in the rest of the world? Like, I guess the argument is, uh, you know, somebody is going to flip a switch and then one thing is going to become so much more powerful than everything else versus just everything kind of leveling up kind of, um, you know, some people are a little behind, some people are ahead, but everything kind of leveling up in tandem. Yeah, it, it, basically it would just be kind of this runaway, you know, and you always see it plotted on this kind of exponential curve, you know, and this is- Yeah, but right, exponential people- curve looks the same from everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, it, yeah. It, it's one of those things too where it's like- I, I think that a lot of these these concerns and these worries, you know, kind of going back to the um, AI evolution type of thing, they, they're just so overblown um, when you actually think about what the real resource constraints and other things that are on these systems and that would be impinging upon it and imposing upon it. And that, you know, these things aren't just super intelligent out of the box. That, that's not, it, it's, it's a fantasy world that a lot of these apocalyptic um, predictions are made from. Yeah, I, I think that designing objective functions when I come to think of it is going to be a big part of like people's time, almost like data cleaning now uh, in the future. Like it'll, that'll always be a big, uh, a, I, I can't tell how big, but my sense is um, like if I come back in 20 years, like designing objective functions is going to be like a big area of, uh, of, um, of research and just uh, not just research, but just of like taking up people's time. Uh, in terms of like actually deploying AIs. Yeah, I mean, even even in, you know, human run systems, it's not something that's really well thought out oftentimes. People want to try to optimize for their KPI or whatever their metric is. And then, you know, once you start tying people's bonuses and other things to certain things, you get these, you get behavior because you're dealing with intelligent agents that are, you know, hey, I get an extra 10% bonus if I hit this target. They start cutting corners, doing other things that are really bad from a systemic perspective in order yeah. to, to reach that target. And, and I feel like machines will be even worse because they'll exploit that immediately, whereas humans might have a good sense of like what they're, like a good intuitive sense of like what we're trying to do in this business or this company. Um, and They know not to push it too far, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to just push that, to, that, that switch to 10 and right. then go. Exactly. All right. So um, it's a really interesting discussion. Uh, I want to get into, um, you were talking about, there's a lot of, um, 
talk recently with uh, all the coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever <laughs> articles about trusting the experts, which is sort of, which is a difficult thing to wrap around, wrap our heads around these days. Um, so, well, I'm, I'm going to let you start. Like, what, what's the argument being put forth about trusting the experts? Who are the experts? And where does that work? Where does that fall apart? I mean, that's a great question because, so I, I've been talking about this. You've been talking about the COVID-19 stuff. Um, I put a few articles up on Medium in my blog that have gotten um, tens of thousands of views and people commenting and emailing and things like that, which is great. Like, I, I always make the, the caveat, the, the claim at the beginning when I write about this, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a virologist, so do your homework, et cetera. Um, but I also, because some of these have, have kind of blown up a little bit, I also get a lot of responses that I think are, are, are quite laughable about, well, you said you're not an expert, so why are you even writing this? You know, so don't hmm. even try because you don't have the proper PhD. Yours is in a different field. You, you haven't studied this according to your own admission. And, I, and you know, you had, a, a, I think, what it was a really good um, episode, what was it, a week or two ago, talking about the COVID-19 models and looking at yeah. some of the assumptions. I got, I got a little bit of... Um well, I got like mixed reviews there because I, again, like some people weren't happy that I didn't come out with a strong conclusion, but I, I couldn't come out with a strong conclusion. Again, I'm not an expert. I just wanted to say, I read into it. This is what I found. And this is the, this is what I could tell you based on, on what I know. Right. Right. And I think that's perfect. And that's great. And that's where, what a lot of people ought to be doing. But what. Um, what I've seen is that people push back and say like, well, you aren't an expert, so you shouldn't comment. You shouldn't mm -hmm. be looking into this. And I think that that goes completely in the face of, of scientific progress, scientific development, and really trying to understand some of this stuff. Um, because oftentimes, um, you know, and this is kind of comes from my own like Kuhnian, Lakatoshian uh, philosophy of science background <laughs> that I, that I kind of take to it is that you know, people do work within these different scientific uh, paradigms and disciplines, and they often don't step back and question some of the underlying assumptions. So one of the things that's making a lot of headlines now is that the models were uh, wrong about the number of deaths and other things like that. And that's a whole discussion about what does it mean for a model to be wrong, especially, right, right. you know, because predictions are hard, especially when they're about the future. Um, yeah, so yeah. Especially, I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't presented as a probabilistic model, but if it if it was, like again, there's always the question of okay, did the low probability event happen or was it a, a bad model? That's right. always a big question. Right, it, 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 that's that, that's a whole you know discussion that we can get into. But you know, one thing that we can do, and I think that you did well in your episode, is actually look at some of the underlying assumptions behind these models. And by being an outsider, and again, the history of science and scientific progress. Uh, bears this out is that outsiders who are intelligent coming from engineering, physics, biology, finance, you know, like whatever it is that can come in and read this stuff and analyze it, build models and ask some questions can really push and propel things forward because we come at it with a fresh look, with fresh eyes. We don't say like, oh, well, yeah, this or not, we just choose that and we go with it. We say, why? What does that mean? What, do, like, could we maybe do this? Could we do that? Could we bring some other stuff in? And sometimes we're completely wrong and they have good reasons. But oftentimes what you see is that uh, just even asking those questions helps push the, push the field forward and helps to actually advance knowledge and, and people, you know, always going back and revisiting those assumptions. And so, you know, bringing in a lot of people who are intelligent from other fields, I think is, is exactly what needs to be done. 
Yeah. So where um, I, I do feel like there's there are people out there who push it so far that they say, okay, the experts are wrong. I'm just going to believe the opposite no matter what. Or, or, or there are definitely people out there in like the libertarian anarchist world who are like, oh, I, whatever the government says, the opposite is true, which is like, okay, that can't literally be true, <laughs> but, 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 but you're still behaving as if it is. Right. Yeah, yeah. And those people are, I don't know, I don't want to say they're lost causes who just kind of are, just want to be contrarian because I do think, you know, especially within the libertarian community, there are a lot of people who are contrarians just to be contrarians. Right, and right. I get that. Like, I understand where, where people are. Like, that's not my personality. I'm more concerned in, okay, just trying to figure out what's what's really going on, what's true, what's not, and, and you know, asking questions about the data that we have, asking questions about the models and the assumptions. You know, you look at that um, uh, paper that came out of uh, Neil Ferguson's group at Imperial College back in, I think it was mid-February or, or early March, something like that where they had predicted 2.2 million deaths if you, quote-unquote, do nothing in, in, right. uh, in, the, in the United States for COVID. And so do nothing uh, they, they was basically just um, no lockdowns, nothing like that. One of the, the assumptions... But w- w- did it also assume that humans wouldn't change their behavior, or people wouldn't change their behavior? Well, that's sorry, exactly that, it. That's what yeah, you're yeah. going to say. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So, so, so that's, what I was, that's what I was going to get at, is that um, there's, for most disease, for the, any disease or virus, you have this reproduction rate that they call R0, R sub-zero. And this, um, if, if uh, the common flu has a, or seasonal flu has a reproduction rate of about 1.3, meaning that every person is going to infect, on average, 1.3 people. And this is, you know, I actually looked into the data, found 60-some studies for this and, and calculated it. And, you know, on average, that's, or that's the median value. Um, across the globe. And um, so they may, but this, this value is not something that is uh, a function of the virus. It's a function of the virus and human behavior, uh, population density, um, geography, culture, like all this other stuff goes into it. So it's not a fixed static value. But what they assume in the paper is that it is, even though they said in the introduction of the paper that, you know, this is likely to change, but here are assumptions. And that's fine. You have to make some assumptions, and it's not clear how how this is going to um, be impacted. You know, what the if everybody suddenly adopts six foot social distancing, what does that do to our not value? We don't have any way of knowing a priori. We can only see it after the fact if that actually occurs by doing an experiment. Um, but this is one of the assumptions that they made, and under that do nothing assumption, two point two million people died, and then under a number of different assumptions, still millions of others died, etc. And so this is one of the, this is apparently the paper that changed um, the Trump, Trump administration's uh, to, uh, tone on the uh, uh, pandemic and everything else. And so you can look into a lot of this stuff and just being an outsider, I think it makes it easy to, easier to, you know, ask some of these questions about these assumptions that, that underlie it. Um, because it's just like, okay, well, you have to make something, but why this? Why this? What if we, what if we tweak this? Right. Um, so what... Um, how, how, how do we deal with the fact that like, okay, definitely it's two months ago, you have this model, 2.2 million deaths. Like it's hard to falsify and you're like, okay, there's definitely like, I can't disprove that there's a risk of this. So like, maybe we should do something drastic, uh, at least from the, from the perspective of like, you know, early March. 
Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think to, to look at some of the stuff, you've got to try to, to, to balance out the costs and the trade-offs. And, and this, is, this is the other issue, too, of, of the people who are just like, shut up and listen to the experts only, is that um, you know, epidemiologists aren't economists. They aren't sociologists. I mean, obviously, these play into epidemiology. Um, but there are other effects and there are going to be different uh, unintended consequences and trade-offs to different mm. responses. And to be honest, I, I have no idea what the proper response necessarily is um, to, to all this stuff. I'm just saying that it's, you know, it's, I think, incumbent on people in these types of situations to, to go out there and to ask these questions, to challenge it, and to try to understand it the best that they can. You know, these papers actually are surprisingly readable. Um, these epidemiology papers. I mean, I know you've looked at a few. Was that your conclusion as well? Like you're able to get your head around it pretty easily? Uh, yeah, yeah. From the, some of the ones I've read, yeah. Uh, yeah at least the ones from the IHME was, um, yeah, it, it wasn't that bad from from my perspective. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, uh, probably it would, it, it's probably not like that easy for the average person to get through it, but it, it wasn't that bad. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All things considered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure, you got to look up a term every now and then, but yeah. the, the math the math behind it isn't difficult. Right. I mean, it's a set of coupled differential equations. If you're looking at a standard SEIR model or something like that, or it's uh, you know, certain Gaussian distributions, if you're looking at different models and ways that they do it, it's nothing that's going to be um, you know, incomprehensible. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, an- another question about like the people who say listen to the experts is a good question is like well who are the experts and how do you know and also even i believe i thoroughly believe like there are experts in in different fields like but like at what point does an expert um like on on which of their statements can you take um at face value and which and, and in what cases are they going out of their expertise yeah and and what's the person's bias as well with a lot of the stuff and I think that's, that's one of the things that's really challenging is because there's so much misinformation that's flowing around this COVID-19. I don't have all the answers. I don't, you know, you probably would say the same thing about yourself. If you have the answers, let us know, please. Um, but I think that most people are, yeah. are kind of searching around and trying to just get their head around this as best that they can. And to be honest, one thing I found to get the best analysis is actually look, listen to the people in finance. So this sounds really weird, uh, but... People in finance are trying to sell you something, okay? And their reputation depends upon them making proper predictions. And I'm not talking about the people on CNBC or MSNBC. I'm talking about the guys who are running, um, you know, family offices, um, doing investment newsletters, other things like that. Because for a couple of reasons, their reputation is based on them being correct. They're trying to, they're typically intelligent people. They're looking at a lot of these different things and they're trying to actually place their money um, on what's on, on these different outcomes. And, and, and they, they're frequently falsified and humbled. Right, right. Which is exactly. also, it's a big thing in epidemiology where it's like, how often can you have your model? Uh, I mean, every once in a while, it's not like something that's never happened, but it's, it's not like if you're an epidemiologist, you're day in and day out building a model and seeing if it works, getting pummeled if it doesn't. But uh, if you're in finance or a trader, then that's exactly what's happening to you. Right. And so they have, you know, to use uh, Taleb's uh, phrase, skin in the game, whereas a lot of these other people uh, don't necessarily have the same sort of incentive. So in this area, what I've, at least what I've found is that, you know, you have an alignment of incentives. If, when you listen to people in government, 
you know, they're typically trying to position themselves to win the next election, uh, what have you. So what you oftentimes get, and this is why libertarians are very suspicious of people in government, is that they're, they are trying to protect their own skin come election time. When you listen to people who are epidemiologists, you know, and in academia, oftentimes, you know, they don't have uh, skin in the game um, necessarily. The big currency there is just notoriety more than anything else, getting your getting uh, citations, getting references, other things like that. That's really what builds an academic career. And so that sets its own set of um, of uh, different incentives uh, that oftentimes tends to lead people one way or, or the other. I mean, it's important to listen to these, but I think, you know, if, when you want to try to get this distilled, I know this is controversial, but <laughs> the people in finance, like guys like Jim right. Bianco, I think is... Uh, sorry, who is that? Uh, Jim Bianco. I think he has been... Yeah, who, who, I've with, never heard of him. Who, who is he? Uh, he's a uh, he's actually a hedge fund manager here in Chicago. Okay. Um, he's been Wait. on top of a lot of this stuff and has really good uh, discussion. Uh, Chris, uh, Chris Martinson as well, who actually is... I think he was a virologist or something like that. And then he moved, runs a, a, a site called Peak Prosperity. Um, mm. He's been on top of a lot of the predictions for stuff like this too. Um, and it's, 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 it's interesting to see how, how those different uh, incentives and the fact that their money is at, at stake and their livelihood is at stake change the way that they present the information too. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to go with this for a second, assuming you're right about that. Um, like these, uh, most of these uh, financial analysts who are actually have skin in the game, they're not experts in epidemiology. They're probably not running models themselves. Maybe a few of them are, but I'm sure they're looking at the epidemiologists. They're looking at the medical experts, but they're trying to figure out, okay, which experts do I, which experts am I going to put more or less weight into? Right. Right. And so it's like, it's, not only it's like yes, you we should listen to experts, but then we have to have experts to tell us which expert we listen to. <laughs> and it's in other words, the individual has to any individual has to put some knowledge into it. You have to you can't just say okay, this is the expert bar none, and I just believe them. It's like no, you have to evaluate uh, w um, what this person is an expert in, whether you should believe them over other experts. And it's actually it's kind of. It's tough to do, but I think it's it's doable. If everyone just did it a little bit, we'd be in a lot a much better situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's the point: is that you have people who have a lot of money um, invested in trying to, I mean, literally in this case, uh, trying to figure out what the next moves are, and they aren't. What I found listening to a lot of these people is that they aren't trying to um, make a score political points. You know, they aren't typically taking a hard line stance one way or the other. Um, they're trying to gauge what's the most probable outcome um, of this pandemic, of this disease. As new news comes out, how do you filter that into the uh, into the other information? And most importantly, for somebody who's listening and trying to stay on top of this stuff, because they have teams of analysts and others who are working right. for them as well. Um, but from somebody who's listening and trying to um, gauge the veracity of the information, you know that they're not lying to you. You know, right. <laughs> like it, you know, again, not the huge guys, not the Goldman Sachs guys that couldn't care one way or the other, not, you know, these kind of mid-level people um, that are, you know, trying to actually sell you something um, based on their own personal reputation. That's what, that's what's important. Yeah. What, uh, do you get a sense of like what they are saying in general? Um, I don't know, like, like from the people you've been reading? Yeah. So um, if you look, if you go to uh, Chris Martinson stuff, he's actually been quite pessimistic. Um, and uh, he, he was spot on about a lot of the, the stuff very early on before the WHO and the CDC 
um, got on board with stuff. And he was kind of screaming at the camera sometimes like, masks are important back when they, the WHO yeah. would say like masks don't matter. Uh, they actually made, I, I even saw some headlines coming out of the, the world health organization, I think, it, or maybe it was CDC. One of the two that was saying that uh, masks might actually make it worse. And I was mm. like, ah, what? <laughs> yeah. Where does, where does that come well, from? Well, I, I heard like all these germs are uh, collecting on, on my masks, which makes me nervous, but I assume it's not making it worse. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just, but um, yeah, I mean, they've been, they've been on top of this stuff, but again, you know where these people are coming from, whereas it's a bit harder to know the incentive structure and the biases from a lot of other people, especially in something that's become unfortunately very politicized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so another, well, another issue that I wanted to bring up was like the, the difference between statistical and mathematical knowledge and medical and epidemiological knowledge, which are often like two different sets of experts, and sometimes they're saying two different things. And that was the one that clashed in the um, the Israeli article I read with the um, that there was a professor in Israel who said on the stats side who said that um, oh it you know there's no correlation with what a country does and and the outcome, and then the 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 like you know the the foil in the article like the like the like the article is written is this is what someone says but this is why it's wrong the other ones was like listen to the biologists and i just <laughs> thought that was like a very funny um just a funny way to like uh, put together the story um but it it does sort of it does sort of make me wonder like how come nobody's attempted to build a causality model like everyone's just trying to do like oh like sweden had this many deaths and they did this and then norway did this and did this and and and, and therefore this is the better policy it's like no i would at least and this is not fair not not foolproof um at all but i would at least try to build a model where it's like okay here are the different regions let me score them in terms of you know what their age distributions are uh, let me score them in terms of what their policies are. Let me score them in terms of what the private response has been. Uh, maybe a few like health and genetic features in there. And then at least try to build a model that way. I would trust that over just anecdotally saying, well, this country did this and this country did that, that, and therefore conclusion. You could, all, you could make almost any conclusion if you do things that way. Yeah. I, I, so I, I think... Um you know, part of the reason that you see a lot more statistically based models is that those actually tend to be a bit more accurate in, in a lot of cases. So, um, for example, I was reading a paper uh, two days ago um, when we were, from when we were recording about calculating R naught. Um, so I was putting together a blog post that uh, on you know this R naught, the uncertainty around it, and how it really changes a lot of these predictions of, of these models. So this right. was a 2014 paper. And it looked at comparing some of the population level models versus contact tracing. And so contact tracing is going to be much more in line with that causality model, right? Um, because you have people who actually do come into contact and you try to track the R naught. And, and it seems from the um, uh, at first blush that that would be give you much better results because you're actually seeing who's coming in contact and able to predict what that R naught value or that reproduction value is going to be as a result. Um, but one of the issues is that your sample size tends to be a lot smaller. And so you have a lot more noise in your data that doesn't necessarily cancel out versus the larger population models 
that look at it. So, I mean, I don't, I didn't get into all the methods for the paper for how, how it puts this together, but that was the conclusion they came to was that really these populations, these like broader statistical models actually perform better in these cases because the, the uh, interactions are so complex that. So wait, what do you mean by the broader statistical models versus what's the, what's the app? What's the alternative? The, the, the contact tracing, the more, the more causal models. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, okay. Interesting. Because, because, but, but it, it makes sense, right? Because if you are just looking at, you know, say um, a handful of people, because you can't contact trace everybody, right? Right. To see how it, how you, you're limited in your resources and ability to be able to see. So you might be able to track 10 people, but that's going to grow exponentially for every person they come into contact with and then they come into contact with and other things. So it's very difficult to actually build a model based on that or actually even estimate the parameters of the disease based on those models, there's a lot of noise that wind up getting into it. You're, you're talking about like the SIR models that... Um... Right. So, so I'm talking about just trying to estimate the r naught value. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, just by looking at individuals. Sure. Right. And so, and, and I'm saying that those contact tracing are going to be more akin to the causality models. You know, you're trying to look actually at those, at those physical interactions to see how the disease is propagating through the population at an individual level. And, and see what that looks like. And that's actually has a lot more error in it than the larger, broader population models. And because of the complexity of disease transmission, um, at least my understanding is that typically the, the statistical models wind up performing a bit better or, or be more reliable. Um, yeah, but I, the, I guess what I'm talking about is trying to uh, at least like look at all the variables that could affect the larger population, like density and age and health and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I, yeah, you see all these like graphs with all these different countries and then people just draw the conclusion. Oh yeah. Obviously this graph means that that country sucks. And it's like, <laughs> I just don't, I just don't know if that's a good conclusion to make. Yeah. I, it's, it, it's, it's kind of frustrating because, uh, one of the data, uh, the websites that has been, um, cited a lot and it's got really great information on it is the, um, our world and data site. Um, yeah. And so they've, they've been doing a lot to actually put a lot of good data, but none of their visualizations, at least with the graphs, are normalized by population or population density or some of these other things. So they'll yeah. just report like raw counts. Right, right. And so obviously some countries look really bad uh, compared to others just because they have larger populations. Right, and right. And when you actually normalize it per person, then suddenly things might flip around or switch or, or what have you. Because again that disease transmission thing is really complicated. It's a function of culture and geography and all this other stuff that goes into it. Um, and it's not just a function of the disease. Right, right. I mean, I, I don't know how New York City did. I mean, you know, we're very dense. Maybe what happened here was almost in the cards. I feel like most of the people who got it, got it when I was told to lock down in four score panic, they sent us all home uh, March 5th. I feel like in the next two weeks when everybody else was out and about living their lives, that's when they all got it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I fortunately lucked out that way. But, um, but yeah, no, I don't know what the, uh, I, you know, yeah, you have to look at density, you have to look at public transportation, you have to look at, I don't really have a good sense of who I know some people here who got sick, but uh, for for the deaths we've have had here, I don't really have a good sense of where they're coming from. Um, mm -hmm. I, I still I still don't know. Even the New York NYC.gov, their graphs they just have some very general graphs of just numbers, which 
uh, always trail off at the end because they haven't counted it all, all yet. And so I never can tell if the things actually, uh, how much of that is things are getting better versus how much of that is they're missing data. And they have no indication whatsoever. And so <laughs> I just don't, I don't know what to think. Yeah, it, it's tough because even doing the postmortem when all of this is said and done and, you know, going back and looking at the data is going to be very difficult to really understand what went well and what didn't because we don't have a whole lot of controls, you know, control experiments with uh, populations. You don't have New York A and New York B right. to be able to compare where one did, did you know, intervention A or X and the other one did intervention Y or not X or whatever it is to actually be able to run these kind of controlled experiments. And so it's going to be very difficult to kind of pull all of that apart. And as you know, there are good statistical methods for trying to um, build these like aggregate populations to do some comparisons and other things, but those have their limitations and are, and are rather sure. complex as well. Yeah, but I mean, there's going to, once this is all said and done, the, the data is so chaotic now, but you know, for decades, there's probably going to, there's going to be data based on like zip code and neighborhood and what's going on in different areas. And I'm sure... I'm sure there'll be all, all sorts of, um, uh, well, academic projects, at least all the way from PhD theses to like uh, school projects for undergrads, just trying to sift through them. Yeah, I, it's surprising. I've gotten um, a lot of people reaching out because I, like, I wrote a couple of posts that became popular, like I said, and I've had a number of people email me um, or sending notes on LinkedIn or GitHub or whatever about collaborating on different projects around COVID-19. Um, some of them look interesting. Some of them, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. They kind of look like uh, quack jobs. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, yeah, there's, just, there's a ton of stuff that's out there um, that people are going to be working on as they dissect it over the years. But I mean, even if you're a quack job, do it, figure it out, because sometimes there's some interesting stuff that comes out of there. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I encourage everyone to check out your podcast. It's artificially intelligent. You can get it on pretty much any podcatcher. I don't know if you have a recommended one, a preferred one. Um, and yeah, everyone, uh, datahubs.org and dot com. Sorry, datahubs.com. Uh, any, anywhere else uh, people should go to find you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for the podcast, it's artificially intelligent. Uh, and the site is artificially intelligent.tech or my personal blog, datahubs.com. Um, so yeah, you can find me there. Uh, I'm on Twitter sometimes. I don't tweet that often, but uh, you know, you can get in contact with me there. Um, I'm always open to feedback uh, and, uh, and discussing some of these topics a lot more. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Any, any final conclusions on our discussion today before we uh, call it, call it a day? And well, it's been good to talk to you again. And there's just, it's crazy because there's so much uncertainty around what's happening. And it's really hard to separate the signal from the noise, you know, so to speak, in the world of AI or in the world of, the, of COVID-19 and, and all the kind of interactions that they, that they have. It's a, it's a complex place. And I think, you know, people having a little bit of humility about it, I think would, would go, go a long way because, you know, you listen to the experts, you can listen to the smartest people in the, wor in the, in the world, but they don't necessarily know what's going to happen next either. So just be open-minded about, about this stuff. Thanks. That's a perfect way to end. Christian, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Max. All right. Again, all the links can be found at localmaxradio.com slash 117. Uh, Christian also had an article on towardsdatascience.com that came out just this Friday after we recorded the conversation. And that article is called The Pandemic of Uncertainty. And he gets into the 
uncertainty aspect to the various epistemological models, particularly the, this elusive R, R0 value or R0 value, how many people does the average person infect and why that can be off by orders of magnitude in either direction. Or maybe R0 isn't off by orders of magnitude, but if R0 is off by a little bit, then the, uh, then, then the estimates on the death count, the number of cases can vary wildly. And so that's important to know. And by the way, I think Christian actually spells this out really well at the end of the article. The point isn't to say, oh, well, the experts know nothing, and we know nothing, and therefore we should do nothing. That's not the point at all, especially in this case when there are you know, very easy things you could do to protect yourself, your personal risk of contracting the disease or spreading the disease, and you could do this without much downside. And I think you'd be smart to make that determination based on local conditions. Here in New York City, for example, uh, last month it was really bad, and I was staying in almost all the time. Now it's it's slightly less bad, so I'm getting out more as cases drop. I'm going for more walks, getting out during the day. Also, you know, I realize that uh, you know getting in the elevator a couple times is not going to kill me. Uh, but I'm still bringing a mask and putting it on when I approach a cluster of people. Do I like the mask? No, I hate the mask. I can't wait until I can take off that damn mask, by the way. Uh, but look, a reasonable amount of precaution is required, especially since there are still things we don't know about COVID-19. We know a lot more about who it's affecting and how bad it is, uh, and, you know, how bad it is, at least in the early parts here in the United States. We see the curve a lot better now than we did before. Um, we can see you know, the, the who's affected by age bracket and by pre-existing condition bracket uh, than we could a lot more. We can see, you know, how fast it's spreading in different cities. Uh, but I think, and, and I think there's data to show that the mask is working. I'm not entirely sure about that, but I think there's data to show that the mask is working. But we still don't know, you know, how long this is going to go on, the exact infection vectors and all that. For example, when they close beaches, it seems to me that this thing might not be spreading as much in an area like an open beach, but I don't know. Maybe someone should look into that. Maybe someone knows something that I don't. I'm just going to throw that out there. There, there is um, one important thing that, uh, well, the, the yeah, a big thing that we don't know is, you know, w what's the, um, how many people are actually immune to this thing. Um, there are some good signs, but we still, we still have to learn that. Another big one, a big, big one, is are these lockdowns actually having uh, the effect that is being sold to us? And are these coercive measures, um, you know, bending the curve, so to speak, above, you know, just um, regular social distancing? You know, the, the, the data is all over the place on that. So back to the point, though, decision making under uncertainty and understanding uncertainty. That's what this is all about. So I'll link to that article by Christian at localmaxradio.com slash 117. Next week, I hope to be talking again to Aaron now that we have accrued a list of news items and bones to pick and all that stuff to dissect for Hungry Hungry Brains. And so hopefully we'll do that next week. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account at Max Sklar. Have a great week. 
Feel the power. 